We're continuing pressure points this series. This weekend we're thinking about pressure in the workplace. And as we think about this, we're going to look at a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome. Now, if you, if you read other people's letters, how many people have... You, you, you go to a restaurant, you, you don't talk to people you're with, you listen to the next table's... My wife does that, you know. She actually puts her hands up on her ear. I'm going to buy her surveillance equipment for Christmas, I think. If you read someone else's letters, it's a good idea to know the context. Imagine this, thriving metropolis in Rome, 30% of the population are slaves. But the rest of the population are not just sitting around in togas going to the forum and and, uh, going to the public baths. They... Many of them wake up early in the morning. They do a six-hour working day. There are 20 million, excuse me, 60 million slaves spread throughout the Roman Empire. Slavery is harsh. The slave is considered to be the property of the owner. The owner can do whatever they like with the slave. They're not all in uh, back-breaking work. Some of them are professionals. Accountants, physicians are also slaves. But it's to this situation, because many of the followers of Jesus were slaves, many of them were not, that the Apostle Paul writes and speaks about their everyday workplace life. So let's have a look, Romans chapter 12, and here's what the Apostle says. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. And then Proverbs 22, verse 29, it it says this. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Uh, It was my first major job at the age of 18. Uh, I was 18, so it was 1863, something like that. Actually, it was the 70s. Anyone remember the 70s? I had hair down to here. Can you imagine that? Hair. Let me just have a moment to remember. Hair. And I had beads around my neck. And I had, anyone remember flares? They were out here somewhere. And wide lapels on the jackets. They were out here somewhere. A fashion demon roamed the earth. And um, it was my first job. There was no conversation about college in our family. My whole family, um, all of the men in our family worked for the same company, the Otis Elevator Company. They were all maintenance engineers on, on elevators. We call them lifts. In fact, I can remember going to work with my dad when I was about 10 or something, and he let me ride up and down on the roof of the elevator. 
excuse me, I just need to call my attorney now I think about that. And uh, college, nah, that's not going to happen, doesn't happen in our family. Get a job, you need money to live. Now, be grateful to God that I didn't follow the family tradition and become an elevator maintenance engineer because I have the practical and mechanical skills of a dead chicken. So that's a good thing. In England, you leave school at 16, you do two years of pre-college in high school, then perhaps you go to college at 18, but I didn't. It was my first job, City of London, and I'm working for a bank, Barclays Bank. There's a bus ride to the subway, then there's an hour on the subway in the morning. The subway is crowded, I'm hanging onto a strap, staring into the armpits of a perfect stranger. And I've got this pressure because I'm useless at my job at the bank <laughs> world the world economy would have suffered if I'd stayed in banking <laughs> and I was initially a bank teller and the chief cashier found out that I was a Christian so he called me God he didn't call me he said hey, hey God how you doing and he loved it because my my till was wrong every day so at the end of every day, he would loudly shout, God is wrong again! And then there was the additional pressure. How do I do this as a Christian? Because it was the office. It was competitive. There was a lot of gossip. And when I finished being a teller and was working in the back office, I worked mostly with women. And here's what I learned. I learned that ladies can tell very naughty jokes. And because I was the Christian, you know, they, they, they'd say, naughty joke coming up, Jeffrey, step outside. So I'd have to step outside the office and just stand there and then they'd tell a naughty joke and then I'd come back in. And it was kind of weird, but beneath those trivial things, there were deeper moral issues about materialism, about representing the product, about integrity. And back then, there was very little teaching on the workplace in the church. So we kind of figured out that you shouldn't steal the pencils and you shouldn't make personal phone calls from work. That was about it. We didn't really talk much about that. I'm glad we are talking about it because God has so much to say about the workplace. The truth about work begins to emerge right from the beginning of the book of Genesis as we're going to see. You dip into books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. You have lots of material about work. Get this. Most of the parables that Jesus taught were set in a workplace context. There is very clear instruction in the New Testament about work. And I'm really sorry if I'm about to mess up someone's day, but the truth is that heaven will not just be about not doing anything. You know that picture of floating around on a pink fluorescent cloud playing an out-of-tune harp driving your neighbor nuts for three million years? We're going to be working in eternity. We don't know what the work is. The only two descriptor words that appear in the scriptures are reigning and serving. That's all we know, but eternity is going to be about activities. So what can we learn now Particularly as we feel pressure in the workplace, what can we learn? If you're following in the bulletin, follow with me. Number one, this. Work is good. God is a worker. 
and he created us to work. Work is good, God is a worker and created us to work. Mark Green says this, work is the primary activity God created us to pursue in communion with him and in partnership with others. You see, there's a lot of confusion about work. Um, How many of you were here last weekend? Raise your hand. How many of you were here the previous weekend when I talked about things? Remember the conversation about things? I'm sorry, I'm in a bit of a naughty mood today. It's the boots. They're cutting off my blood supply. (laughs) When two weeks ago I talked about things, I told you that we were still living with a big fat Greek hangover, this idea that the body is evil, only the spirit is spiritual. Therefore, that idea bled into the church, creating a negative shadow over the issue of sexuality. A similar hangover exists around work. The Greeks believed that work was a curse, that, it's, that the gods never did any work. Humans were made for work and work alone. So that negativity crept into the church. Then people began to see work just as a means to an end. Well, why do I work? Well, it's a necessary evil to get money. That thinking is wrong, but it's very prevalent. And then there's the idea that work is about me and mine. I mean... Let me, let me push the envelope a little. I, I love living in America. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love you. But I get worried that sometimes the American dream can accentuate a cult of individualism where instead of seeing work as it was designed to be, which is about contribution into community and society, me playing my part as part of the big picture, it all gets narrowed down to the deism of me. My dream, my hope, my family. And then others see work as just being temporary. You know, I'm just hanging on to retirement until I go and play golf. I mean, that's not going to happen for me because... I'm rubbish at golf. I don't have a swing. It's a spasm. It's not good. (laughs) And then there are others who kind of see work as being their identity. Uh, Women often don't do this, but men. Watch a bunch of men when they get together. Often the conversation goes like this. Hey, how you doing? Fine. How you doing? Fine. What do you do? And we rush quickly to what we do because it seems to donate our worth, our value, our significance. So what do we learn from Scripture about all of this? Well, work is good. God is a worker. Genesis introduces us to the God who is a worker. Now, that's shocking because classic creation myths normally spoke of God as a warrior who competed with other gods and triumphed. But Genesis doesn't reveal a warrior but a worker, a craftsman. And when it talks about God working in creation, the ordinary Hebrew word for work is used. And it's all set in the context of a regular working week, six days, day of rest. Not only has God a worker, but he likes it. In fact, he delights in it. He says it's good. And he is satisfied with his productivity. He's a worker. He delights in it. 
And then he places Adam in the garden to work it and keep it. Now remember this. Work did not come as a result of the fall of humanity. Toil did. Work was there before everything went wrong. It was part of the original creation design. God's original intention for Adam was not just to read the Bible and pray every day, but to be a really good gardener. By the way, can I just be a little controversial? I think I will. That speaks to us of a need for us as Christians to embrace a responsible approach to the environment which for too many Christians has become a dirty word because it's been politicized or because it's been hijacked by extremism. If anyone should have a responsible approach to the environment, it is us. We should be leading the way. Why? Not because we worship Mother Earth, but rather we worship Creator God and we realize the planet doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Him and we are stewards of it. I need to hear an Amen. Unfortunately, the politicizing of the agenda, together with an escapist eschatology that says, well, Jesus is coming again soon, so it's all going to burn up anyway, so who gives a rip? Combine those two things together, and you've got a very irresponsible approach to something that really matters to God. So God puts Adam in the garden, look after it, tend it. And as scripture unfolds, God is revealed as a gardener, artist, potter, shepherd, king, homemaker, builder. And then Jesus comes. What does he say? John 5. My father, he says, is always at work to this day. And I too am working. How does God reveal himself? Look at what Philip Jensen says. If God came into the world, what would he be like? For the ancient Greeks, he might have been a philosopher king. The ancient Romans might have looked for a just and noble statesman. But how does the God of the Hebrews come into the world? As a carpenter. So work is good. Now, it's not perfect because thorns and thistles came in after the fall. And we know that work with time pressure and bullying and that that aggressive boss and office jealousy and lies in the sales context and toxic cultures developing. It's not perfect, but it is good. Not only that, it's not just a means to an end. Sometimes I hear people say, I don't live to work, I work to live. In other words, it's just a necessity. But please listen carefully. There's a sense in which we are designed to live to work. Because we don't just work to create money to survive, but the work itself, the productivity of work, is part of how we are designed. Uh, And it's not just about me and my family. Dorothy Sayers said this, listen carefully to her comment. The essential modern heresy is that work is not the expression of a man or woman's creative energy in service of society, but only something that one does in order to obtain money and leisure. And it's not just about pathway to retirement. In fact, there's a lot of people who spend their whole lives dreaming about retirement. Paul Tournier said most people spend their entire lives indefinitely preparing to live, dreaming about the day when they don't have to wake up with an agenda and they wake up without an agenda and three weeks later they're really bored. That's one of the reasons why many people like to volunteer in retirement because they still have that designed need to contribute. Now, please, no one needs to get 
condemned about that. If you're playing three rounds of 18 holes a day right now as a retiree, God bless you. I'm just saying that there is something in us that is about living in the now and living with contribution. And it's not supposed to be our identity. When Aaron Callan left Lehman Brothers as chief executive, here's the comment that came. When I left my job, it devastated me, Aaron said. I just... I couldn't just rally and move on. I didn't know how to value who I was versus what I did. What I did was who I was. It's not supposed to be our value. And then we've got to get rid of the notion that only certain types of work are worthy. That there's certain work that's demeaning to us, dehumanizing. Please remember, the New Testament was written in part to slaves. We didn't have any career options. But the value and the dignity and the worth of work is shared. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Look at that, that, that phrase, good works. You know what preachers like me do with that? We rush too quickly to talk about what we do in church. But the word there is ergon, which is the general word for work. God is interested, as we're going to see in a moment, in all of our lives. Work is good. Secondly, secondly, there is no such thing as secular work. There is no such thing as secular work. Now, let me just share something that I've shared here before, so forgive the repetition. But I, I just want to tell you how I got into doing what I'm, my work. I became a Christian at the age of 17. No Christian background, kicked out of Sunday school after going three times for bad behavior. And um, no Christian family background whatsoever. Became a Christian at the age of 17 and within two or three weeks began to feel that I was going to be a pastor. But I was only 17, you know, hair, beads, flares, lapels. And... I don't, know, I don't know the Old Testament from the New Testament from the books at the back. I haven't got a clue. As it turned out, I, by the time I was 21, I was a senior pastor. I'd been to Bible school at 19, went and then planted a church at 21 and married, I married a pastor's wife. I mean, what I meant is... I mean, my wife was a pastor's wife. Me, I was the pastor. <laughs> Stop the rumor mill. I'm going red. She was a pastor's wife at 18. I mean, imagine that. 21, 18. We're, we're senior pastors telling everyone how to live. How do I get into that? Well, three weeks after I became a Christian, I went to a youth retreat. Youth weekend, we had a guest speaker come in and he didn't know any of us. And he stood up on the Friday evening and he said this, freaked me out. By the way, if you don't believe in God, listen to this, because I need an explanation. If there's no God, I, I just need an explanation for this. He stood up on the Friday night, doesn't know any of us, and he said, he said, on my way here, he said, God spoke to me and told me that there are three people here that God has called into Christian leadership. And, he, and then he said this, get this, he said, God told me your first and last names. That's what I said, honey. 
He said, this will be confirmation to you. I'm like, what? And I start looking around the crowd like, who, who might the three be? It's probably that guy sitting near the front who had his hands raised during the announcements. He's really keen. <laughs> On the Saturday evening, I had an experience of the Holy Spirit because Jesus really is alive and there really is a God. We're not making this up. This is not because there's nothing on TV this morning. It's true. And I had an experience. I felt the power of God come upon me. And the guy at the front stands up. This same guy, he said, said, someone's having an experience of God. And he described what was happening to me. And I'm thinking, this is freaky. That is one scary person. So I go up to him at the end. The service is ended. I had a question about what happened to me. I'm bewildered. I did not introduce myself. I just said, excuse me, sir, I have a question. He answered my question. I turned to walk away. He tapped me on the shoulder. He said, before you go, your name is Jeff Lucas, isn't it? (laughs) To be honest, at that moment, I wasn't sure what my name was. (laughs) I said, yes! He said, God has called you to preach, son, and be a Christian leader, hasn't he? I said, yes! <laughs> he said, get on with it then. <laughs> Amazing prophet, terrible pastor. <laughs> Three weeks later, I'm at a conference. He's there. I run up to him in the street outside the conference center. Long hair, beads, flares, lapels. I said, Mr. Barr, his name was John Barr, he's with the Lord now. I said, Mr. Barr, I said, I've been looking for you. I said, I don't know whether you remember me, Jeff Lucas, I was at that retreat, God spoke to you. I said, I've been looking for you, and I'll never forget it. He said, no, son. He said, I've been looking for you. And he put his hand on my head right there in the street and prayed for the future ministry that I would have. Now you're looking, I can see it in your eyes, some of you are looking at me going, awesome. Some of you are going, why can't I have an experience like that? I have a theory. I have a theory that God said to a junior angel, Eric, the junior angel, (laughs) that God said, Eric, Jeff's really stupid. (laughs) He's, He's kind of slow. He gets in traffic jams and becomes an atheist and he's not, it's not good. So let's do something really awesome so he'll never forget how I called him. Now all of that was awesome. But here's what it led me to believe. It led me to believe, first of all, that it always happens like that, which it doesn't. And secondly, that the highest calling was to be a pastor, which it isn't. There is no such thing as secular work. We need to embrace the dignity of our calling. If God has not called you to be a pastor, missionary, whatever, for you it's not the highest calling, it's the wrong one. William Tyndale in 1528 says, There is no work better than another to please God. To pour water, to wash dishes, to be a shoe mender or an apostle, all is one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one as touching the deed to please God. The artist, Mark Cazalet, said, When I commit myself and my work into God's hands, there is no split between the sacred 
and the secular. So everything I do becomes interconnected and part of my dialogue with God. The Bible uses the same word to describe manual work as it does to describe apostolic ministry. But often the church has not backed up that truth. Why is it that sometimes in the church, if you become a Sunday school teacher, faithfully working with kids for 45 minutes a week, we pray for you and bless you, but you're a high school teacher working in a high-pressure environment for 50 hours a week, we don't pray for you. Why is that? It's because we've got ourselves locked into this sacred view where we celebrate what is allegedly sacred and don't realize that all of it is of interest to God. Let's get out of the idea of secular work. In a sense, we are all full-time Christian workers. Thirdly, if that is true, thirdly, our workstation is our worship station. Our workstation is our worship station. Hard work is worship. And so the Apostle Paul, remember, he's talking to slaves in this context. Whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Wow. First Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You see, we've got to start to see or continue to see that worship is not a few songs that we sing on Sundays, but that our work is part of our worship as we work enthusiastically, as we understand who we ultimately work for, as we allow the workplace to build character in us, as we care about the people we work with, as we exceed what is expected of us, as we expand our skills, as we dedicate our work to God, it becomes an act of worship. Fourthly, Fourthly, we are called to carry our values into the workplace and live provocatively. We're called to carry our values into the workplace and live provocatively. 1 Thessalonians 4, Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Be careful when you're tempted to say, well, business is business. Be careful with the temptation to compartmentalize Sunday from Monday. Sadly, we don't normally do too well with this stuff. In 1983, the Gallup organization commissioned a survey among Christians in the workplace. You know what they found out? They found out that Christians are just as likely to steal company supplies. They are just as likely to cheat on taxes. They are just as likely to call in sick when they're not sick. Oliver James, who wrote the book Office Politics, How to Survive in a World of Lying, Backstabbing and Dirty Tricks. There's a title for you. He says the most important thing in the workplace, and I don't think he's writing as a person of faith, is authenticity to our core, who we are. And as followers of Jesus, not only are we called to live to the core of being followers of Jesus, but let's see that as we do so, we can change the world. Church historians have noticed 
that the three great church planting centers of the New Testament, Antioch, Alexandria and Rome, were not planted by an apostle, but by ordinary people just getting on with life and living beautifully. So earn the right to speak at work. My first day at Barclays, I went in, you know, with a big badge on my, on my jacket that said something subtle like, hello, you're going to hell, or something like that. And I had fishes and stickers and smiled, Jesus loves you. And I had the biggest Bible you've ever seen. I needed a truck to carry the Bible in, you know. It was like, slightly exaggerated, but it was this. And I went into the work, I went into the lunchroom with my big Bible and my badges. Didn't occur to me that it wouldn't be a bad idea to do my work well and earn the right to speak. Be trustworthy. A merchant banker recently said that the greatest casualty in the latest global financial crisis has been the breakdown of trust, or trust has been the casualty. We don't trust people anymore. Business done with a handshake. Forget that. So when you're trustworthy at work, you're modeling something powerful. Here's a thought. Be kind at work. You ever met those growling Christians who are like irritating? And then they say to their small group, they say, pray for me. Because I'm being persecuted for Jesus at work. And you look at them you think, it's not Jesus. <laughs> You're doing this all by yourself, buddy. It's you they don't like. What about being kind? What about being ready to respond? The Bible says always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. That kind of implies a question. And the question is often provoked by a provocative lifestyle of goodness and grace. And don't make an issue out of everything. You meet those Christians, they're like, I'm a person of principle. You took two minutes extra for your coffee break. Here I stand, I can do no other. Give me a break. Learn what's important. Learn to compromise. I can hear someone saying, Compromise? disgraceful word we need to learn what's important I would like to suggest that Jesus didn't tell his disciples everything that he noticed about them that was wrong all the time they wouldn't have been together for three years if every morning he got up the perfect son of God said hey Peter let me just tell you there's 27 things you got you messed up on yesterday let's learn what is important in their book your work matters to God. I, I read this. I want to share it with you. It says this. Douglas Sherman, William Hendricks. The key to bringing the culture and the church back together, to renewing the workplace and reforming the church, may well be a movement of people who are known for their hard work, for the excellence of their effort, for their honesty and unswerving integrity, for their concern for the rights and welfare of people for the quality of the goods and services produced, for their leadership among co-workers, in short, for their Christ-likeness on and off the job. And here's the question the writers propose. What could an army of such workers accomplish? Well, here's the last thing. By the way, before I move to the last thing, 
Are you kind of an undercover Christian at work, like 007? Please don't go into the workplace tomorrow morning and say, Gather round, ye fleshly people. For I was at Timberline yesterday, and there, a man with a rather strange speech impediment and boots comprised of 37 rats stood up and talked unto us about the workplace. Gather round and touch the hem of my garment, if you will. Don't do that. But let's not be undercover. Number five, avoid two evils. They're extremes. Avoid two evils, being lazy or workaholic. See, there's two extremes. One is being lazy. I love what Proverbs says about laziness. I love Proverbs. It's kind of amusing. Look at this. A lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I'll be killed if I go out in the street. (laughs) There's always a reason to not do that thing. Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes is a lazy person to his employer. You know, I found out recently, I don't want to admit this, this is just between me and you, lean forward slightly, lean forward, look, look at you, some of you, you're like, I will not lean forward, don't you British people come over here and tell me how my posture should be, we fought the war of independence so we could sit up straight. I'm sorry, I'm in a really naughty mood today. I found out recently that I'm a bit lazy. Now, I work really hard. I love my work. But here's here's what laziness is for me. Laziness is not doing the things that I'm bored by. You do that? Right. That's why I have 1,600 emails. <laughs> See, laziness is not just about inactivity. All right. You can lean back now. And for those of you that didn't, lean forward. <laughs> well done for making your stand. Just kidding. The other extreme is workaholism. Where, you know, you make excuses for it. It's for the family. It's for our future. It's just that you're missing your kids growing up. And it's often fed by greed. Jesus said in Luke 12, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. We should print that text on every credit card statement. As you walk into every store, Ken Costa is a merchant banker in London. He said, workaholism can be as an acute an addiction as any recreational substance. Let's not be lazy. Let's not be compulsive. Well, in a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to do something a little different this weekend. We often ask for a hand raised in prayer. I'm going to ask for something a little different this weekend. We've been doing it throughout the weekend. Don't close your eyes just yet. Let me propose a few questions. What are you going to be doing this time tomorrow? Homemaker, office, factory, truck. 
God is just as interested in that as he is in this moment. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to respond. And I'm going to ask you to respond, if you're able to, by standing to your feet. And we're going to have a moment of prayer. I'm going to ask you to stand if you realize that there has been a consistent inconsistency at work. And you want to address that. We don't get it always right. But a consistent inconsistency. Maybe you've been undercover. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand. If you're at a career junction, you're considering your options. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand if you need a job. And you're saying to the Lord, please, I want a job. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand if you're a younger person and you'd like to take this opportunity to say to God, what would you like me to do, Lord? Oh, you've got your career pathway set and it's good to reflect and plan. But wouldn't it be amazing if 30 years from now, some people said I was there that Sunday morning and I I offered my future to God. I'm going to ask you to stand if that's true. And then I'm going to ask you to stand if you're a, one of our wonderful retirees. But in your heart, you would like to take this moment to say, God, what shall I do with this season? What are you looking for from me? So if that's true for you, uh, why don't you just quietly stand, any one of those right now. Go ahead. Just right where you are if you want to make that response. Consistency at work. You need a job. You're at a junction place. You're saying to God, what do you want me to do, both with the future career, perhaps with the retirement years? Here we are, Lord. a lot of us standing please listen carefully if you are sitting near someone who is standing I don't want them to stand alone and there's a lot of people standing do not ask them why they're standing this is their moment with God but we do these things together in community so would you look around please and would you make sure that nobody is standing alone would you get up from where you are and go and put your hand on their shoulder and simply stand with them. Please make sure that nobody is standing alone. There need to be some movement in here and folks coming in. And if you're still standing alone, and I don't want you to, I want you to wave at me so that somebody will come to you now and stand with you. No one needs to stand alone. Those of you that have stood to respond to this, why don't you just open your hand in front of you? And here we are, Lord. We we posture ourselves intentionally and deliberately in availability. We want to be part of that army of ordinary people who reflect your glory in the workplace in 
our homemaking, in our retirement years? Would you lead those who are looking for guidance? Would you open doors for those who are looking for work? Would you direct those who are at a junction? Would you empower those who need consistency? Would you inspire those who have the space of retirement to know what it is that you look for from them and therefore what it is that you will empower them to do in their retirement years? So we whisper our prayers, Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. And everyone said, Amen.